much flexibility can we build into that space for any changes that may be coming forward, right? Because we've learned throughout the years with behavioral health that it's changed. And as we come up with new regulations and new safety measures or new modules of care, we want to be able to change with it. podcast. This is your host, CCB, and we have a topic today that we're going to have a conversation around, which touches many of us. And we know from statistics that the many is gigantic. And I want to say the many is gigantic. We're talking about behavioral health and behavioral health design. And we know that 25% of U.S. adults are diagnosable for at least one mental health disorder in any given year. Okay, think about that, 25%. One in 25 Americans suffer from a debilitating mental illness. That's one in 25. And then half of all Americans will experience some type of mental health problem in their lifetime. Coming off of the pandemic, you just imagine how much more anxiety there is that we've all been facing. And so we know how huge the problem is and how giant the challenges are. And we love to celebrate people that are working to overcome challenges. So today's guests, I'm going to have them introduce themselves, but we have Charity Holmes from the University of Washington Medical Center, and Lori Epler, who's a principal at SRG Partnership in Seattle. So welcome, ladies. Charity, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Charity Holmes. I'm the Assistant Administrator for Behavioral Health Services for the University of Washington. I've been in healthcare for over 20 years. I'm an RN by trade, and I've been in behavioral health for over 15 of those 20 years. And I'm specializing right now, uh, reconstruction and building of behavioral health spaces to make them safe and do program planning for behavioral health uh, patients. And I'm sure we're keeping you very busy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And Lori, tell us a little about yourself. Hi, I'm Lori Epler. I'm a medical planner, architect, and a principal here at SRG Partnership. I've been working with mental health for a while, healthcare for about 25 or so years. Mental health in the last five, 10 years, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of demand. There's a lot of need in the community for mental health, but there's also like personal reasons why people get into this. Um, a, a while back, I found out, I got approached, I was doing some genealogy and I was approached by someone from the Oregon State Hospital which is the psychiatric state hospital in Oregon, saying, hey, are you a relative of this person? He died here. We have his ashes and we'd like someone to take them home. And I started digging into this with my family and realized that this is my my great, great uncle. He had left home when he was about 18 and no one ever knew where he went. And he spent over 50 years in the Oregon State Hospital before he passed away. We shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) We shouldn't be keeping people in hospitals for that long. There's anything that we can do about it. And so it became apparent that there was something important that I could do in this space about creating the right environments for healing instead of putting people away. So that's my personal story. Yeah, Lori, thanks a bunch. (laughs) The big question that we'd like to tackle is, you know, how, how does design impact patient recovery. So you you both have come at it from your perspectives and we are going to be enormously grateful for the stories that you have to tell because you're you're doing it every single day. Charity, how about you start with 
because you're talking about you know, creating the facilities, being responsible for them. What's been your learning curve in what are the factors, the elements that need to be incorporated in the behavioral health spaces? Uh, it's been a huge learning curve. So my, um, my experience with designing behavioral health spaces started back in California when CMS and Joint Commission started doing a lot of their citations for the ligature requirements in behavioral health spaces. And this started about 12 years ago. It was one of the lucky first units to get cited for the ligature requirements when those when they started really doing the citations on those, which very good surveys started happening around that. And so it was very interesting working with the architects and the construction entities around trying to figure out how to do that because most of these spaces in hospitals are retrofitted spaces. They are med surge units that were retrofitted to be behavioral health units now, right? And so trying to figure out how to make those even safer for ligature requirements was a very interesting space. Luckily, I was working for an organization at that time that was really an advocate of involving patients and families. And so I was um, really fortunate to be able to work with a patient family advisory council at the beginning of my career and to working in this. So having that experience and working with that patient family advisory council really helped me and my foundation in this space involving that. And I think that's part of the, the most important aspects of this. And so throughout my career and throughout my development in all of these spaces, it's really important to make sure that you're involving those elements when you're planning any kind of space, because those are your experts, right? Your patients and your families are really the people experiencing these spaces and, and these therapeutic actions as you're trying to get them healed <laughs> you know? and, and onto the next level of care. And so if you can involve them into everything from not only the way the room is designed, but just the type of seating you're using. <laughs> and so as one of the projects I'm working on now is behavioral health teaching facility for the University of Washington that's going to be on the Northwest campus. And so that's actually the exercise that we just went through a couple weeks ago as we brought in chairs for families and staff to sit in, say, these are the chairs that are going to be in your therapy rooms. Are they comfortable? Do you like the seats? Do you like the armrests? Do you? <laughs> so we had all these questions for them to actually answer and try out these chairs. And so even to those kind of details and the color samples. It's fascinating that you bring in, obviously, the users of the of the spaces to because they are the experts, if you will, in the functional use of them. But I'm going to turn it to Lori and say there's a whole expertise in translating those needs into actual design. So so Lori, uh, Charity just uh, unpacked an enormous amount of, of, you know, kind of tracking through the process. But from the standpoint of doing a programming exercise in the very beginning, how does how does that does it look any different than any other design programming exercise? <laughs> Okay. It does look different. I think it's interesting because the models, the, the the treatment models for mental health are changing so rapidly right now that each project really has a different set of rules, a separate set of flows, set of spaces, set of rules as to how spaces should be connected or not connected. And so I think each client has a very different perspective on this. So when we started working with Charity and her team on the BHTF project, you know, there was already a program established um, in the pre state pre-design process. It's a long story the way that gets developed, but we received a program and it didn't really match the model of care 
that the University of Washington and, and Cherry and her team were actually planning on achieving. And um, so in the process of design, we ended up changing the program, um, having more, more larger group therapy spaces, more, more open space per person, um, per patient, so that there was more space, less density of, of people in the space, which allows people that breathing room to heal. We changed the model of nursing and so that the nursing staff would be more distributed um, from the way it had originally been planned. Instead of having a centralized nurse station, we then had distributed nursing out in the, in the milieu of the patients. Um, so a lot of those things are just super dependent on who's, who's operating it, who's building it and um, who the space is for. I think it's interesting because one of the things that they don't teach you in architecture school or design school, you learn all kinds of things about creating beautiful space. They don't teach you about how to make a safe space. Mm. And so for me, that was the biggest learning curve moving into mental health because with with healthcare spaces, you're you're looking at efficiency, you're looking at durability, you're looking at, Performance, right? Those are the things you're looking at. When when you're thinking about mental health, the first consideration has to be: Is this safe? The second for, for any of the users. So that could be the providers, that's the patients, that's the families. That's yeah. Correct. Could this be used in a way that could hurt someone, whether it's themselves or someone else within the space? And so that's the first consideration. You know, my first mental health project was actually an evaluation of, as Charity was talking about, an old medical surgical unit that had sort of been changed to become a, med, a, a mental health facility. And they knew that they were about to get hit by all kinds of regulatory things. And so we did a study and we identified over a hundred items that needed to be changed in order to be safe. And then had to go through a phased renovation project for that. But it's a huge mindset change to think about how could I hurt myself here? You know, you walk into a room and say, what, what isn't right? It is um, just not the way designers typically think. <laughs> not the way that they think. And Char Charity, you also bring up, and you're both talking about this, yeah. if you're reusing a space or redesigning a space to, to be able to do these kinds of things, how much flexibility can be built into any space to also incorporate all the needs that iteration you know, of, of care is, you know, requires, that's just fascinating to think about. Yeah. That's actually one of the things as we built the new tower that we were actually, we're looking at um, how much flexibility can we build into that space for any changes that may be coming forward, right? Because we've learned throughout the years with behavioral health changed. And as we come up with new regulations and new safety measures or new modules of care, we, we want to be able to change with it. And so we've done things innovative with Lori and her team to help facilitate those changes. And so even within the nursing station component, we worked really closely with Lori to figure out we have a very high acuity population that's going to be coming into this, this space. And there's kind of a dichotomy of theories on whether you want an enclosed nursing station or an open nursing station right now in a behavioral health space. And so we decided to go with an enclosed nursing station, but we worked really closely with Lori's team to figure out how can we build this with the flexibility to make it open if we decide to open it later. Mm -hmm. And so we, we came up with a really cool design 
that's enclosed right now with the ability to take off the plexiglass and still have a beautiful counter and an open area if we um, move into it and a year after moving into it with this patient population decide that we can actually open it and it's gonna be more therapeutic to this patient population to open it or open half of it you know, and be able to do that. And we actually did design it to be able to open half of it if we need to. And so both of those are options and flexibility. And so it was a really cool partnership to be able to do that with the architects. And we did that with several spaces. A lot of our stuff is modular. And so we don't have to um, make sure that it's permanent or built in or things like that. It is flexible designs. So we can do that. Okay, that's going to open the door to another piece of this that um, the question about how do providers and designers and the ecosystem of support work together to make this happen. So you can have the need, Charity, and explain the you know requirements, and Lori, you can come up with the design, but there are suppliers and vendors and you know any other number of, of folks that are involved in the, deli- the final delivery. And it's almost like, is there a group of usual suspects that you work with, or are there folks that are that stand out because they've spent so much time in the industry? But your ch- needs are changing so rapidly. It's just interesting to think about. There are a couple. There are a couple of usual suspects because there's there's the behavioral health build guide, right, that has usual suspects on the end of it. There's the New York guide that has some more usual suspects on it. Um, and so you go to those first because those are your, those are your normal ones. And then you go outside of it because those don't always have all of them. And so Google's been a good friend, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, just really. And then there's some things you have to manufacture. You have to go to people and say, this is what we think we need. Can you make it? And so you they manufacture it. And and one of the favorite parts of my job right now is to work with the architects where they come in and they say, hey, we made this really cool bench and it's got this built-in light and we think it works. Can you come look at it and test it? I'm like, sure. And I go look at it and I break the light (laughs) because my patients are going to break the light. (laughs) We had fun sending her um, like ceiling grid, um, like vent covers and, and seeing how she could destroy them or how she could hook something into it. To make sure that it was going to be safe for her patients. And so we have this relationship where we we go back and forth. Um, Charity knows how people can damage things. Good job, Charity. I thought of baseball bat. <laughs> She's very good at destroying things. And, um, and, and we go back and forth until we get it right. That's a great relationship. Uh, but it also is, it's fascinating to think that the way that you folks work together, you know, with the need that's out there, there are massive needs for square footage of behavioral health. Mm-hmm. And and what do you see, you know, outside of your own kind of ecosystem? How Like how much hope do you have for what's taking place in other parts of Washington, you know, in other parts of the United States? I see faces that are grimacing just slightly. No, I'm just trying to figure out how to answer that, to be honest. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's a very broad question. It is very broad, but I am so hopeful, honestly, um, because I I see things expanding, like crisis centers that are being built and being funded. I I see other like long-term civil commitment beds that are being funded. Like behavioral health has taken on such a wave of of need and people are actually seeing the need to actually fund it and not just retrofit things, right? Mm -hmm. Seeing the need to have it as a priority. I 
for the first time, like I think, think people are actually seeing like this. This is a, a national need, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think in the last like eight to ten years, like people are actually standing behind it, right? And so it gives me a wave of hope that we're actually getting to where we need to be and we're destigmatizing it for the first time, um, which is, uh, you know, it's one of the things foundations for our building is to destigmatize behavioral health. Um, we put the cafeteria for the campus in the bottom of this building, like the first floor of this building, um, so that people come into this building just naturally um, for everything, because we wanted to make this not just the, the building that had the, the psych patients. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that people are starting to see that across the nation too. You don't just have this freestanding psych building um, that's in the corner of the bottom of your county. You know? um, so it is coming part of the natural culture. And I, and I really actually appreciate that. So for me, it gives me hope. And I think that um, having more of these conversations um, and, and having more architects that are familiar with it, being able to have more providers that are familiar with it. I think for me, it gives me hope. I, I agree. Um, it, it, it definitely is much more hopeful than it was even five years ago, right? And it's interesting that the pandemic somehow in all of us becoming more anxious and more depressed <laughs> has caused us to talk about it more. And it's come to light, right? Everyone is much more comfortable talking about mental health needs than they were five years ago. And that conversation has continued all the way to the governor's you know, mansions in all of our states, right? So we have offices in, in Portland and Seattle. So we're, we're closely following Washington and Oregon. And both governors have a huge, huge priority placed on um, funding mental health. So this year, I believe the number in Washington, they just passed over a billion dollars again for mental health, including some additional funding for the University of Washington project. But there are other things. Um, like expanding the workforce and increasing pay for the workforce and mental health and things that are being prioritized in our state. There's not enough. I don't think that there's enough focus on prevention yet with the way our dollars are being spent. We're doing a pretty good job of thinking about ways that we are going to build beds and crisis centers, not as much on how we're going to catch cases early, you know, you know, I think um, I know like yeah, in the state of California, uh, yeah. also our governor has, you know, has put a, a spotlight on it and recognizing and and what we're seeing uh, in California is a great deal of housing for, you know, for the unhoused and, and you know, the whole housing first and get people and, no, you know, knowledge that people on the street uh, it doesn't take long if you didn't have a mental health issue to develop a mental health issue. So, so if we can, you know, if we can kind of short circuit that to your point though, obviously there's, there's so much more to do, but in the, in the area of what we can do, one of the other things that I kind of wanted to have you, uh, you guys, you folks talk about is the, um, the way that spaces are becoming more human. And you've talked about the functional need, but but I've also heard you talk about some of the other considerations that are being made relative to design or materials or. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of things, right? We're trying to make things less institutional. I mean, the whole purpose, the whole design from parameter or the design. Oh, you're just going out there for a minute. Uh-oh. Oh, there you're back. I'll say it again. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) 
Um, the whole design premise behind or the concept behind the University of Washington Behavioral Health Teaching Facility was that it's an institution, yes, but it shouldn't feel institutional. In other words, it's, it's not going to feel like your, your bedroom at home, but could it have the influences more of like a hotel or something that, that, that has more of an appealing and soothing setting than your typical, you know, with the, the doors, with the little tiny panels and, you know, the, the old school design that you might have seen in the old state hospitals. So we're, we're really looking at things that are more tactile, you know, more comfortable, um, that, that more resemble things that you would see out in the rest of the world. Um, Charity, you can probably <laughs> weigh in there as well. Yeah, I mean, we don't want you walking in and feeling like you're in a jail. And we don't want you walking in and feeling like you're walking into a kindergarten setting. Because a lot of the psych facilities, when they had to do quick retrofits, had to buy what was out there, which is a lot of the, the hard plastic blue furniture, right? Figure out how to do more modern type furniture, how to do more home type furniture. And to the point that we, for the, the bathroom doors in the patient rooms, we did sliding barn doors. And so very home-like, right? And we still found a way to do them. So they're ligature resistant. <laughs> um, and um, to that aspect, the things that we did um, on the, these, these um, units are on the fourth, fifth, and sixth floors of the building. But we did find a way to do patios on each of the, each of the floors. So they have access to fresh air, outdoor air. Um, and on the fourth level, we found a way to do an actual atrium where they can actually out, go outside and have a garden space and actually be able to sit outside or do yoga outside. And it's actually a pretty big space. Um, the, when you look up at the fence that surrounds that space, it's a no climb fence. But when you look up at it, it's, a, it's um, one of those fences that has an optical illusion where you don't really see the fence. And when you look down from the patient's perspective, you don't really see the fence, you see the beautiful view. And so the architects were very intentional about finding that material, um, which yeah. was very cool. We worked really hard to find something that didn't wasn't reminiscent. Most of the, the climb-free mesh sort of things, they look they make it look like prison bars. And that is the opposite of what you want, right? There's nothing about the law enforcement and jail system that we want to reference here. We want people to feel comfortable and, and in an appealing environment. And so we went through, I don't even know how many samples of things um, before we settled on what we did. But I think it turned out beautifully. Um, and it, it was is. a great it's, answer. It turned out great. And then the other things we did were we hired artists and photographers to help decorate this facility. And so um, uh, the photographer that we hired, it actually printed the photography on Acrovin so it could be non-destructible on the psychiatric unit. And um, it's beautiful photography. It's of the area, um, different versions of Washington. So you have the desert scape and you have the, the ocean and all the different areas. So very much outdoorsy. So they don't feel like they're enclosed and, uh, you know, things like that, that just add to the atmosphere. So the patients don't feel like they're there. We also built in a sensory room on each of the units. And so the patients that can uh, be able to access that type of room that are safe um, can have access to a room that has like a vibrating chair and a 3d projector, and they can feel like they're actually at the ocean and hear the sounds and things like that. And so very much working with um, the architects. And then to think of the staff perspective versus just the patient perspective, um, we put in a respite room in the staff lounge. 
And so looking at things like that, that were that are not just um, not just normal, typical um, mm -hmm. things. I think um, we're seeing also so many more um, more offerings from a lot of the, the material makers and the uh, furniture makers that are, um, because there's such a, um, such a move towards hospitality in almost every aspect of, you know, of place today, making people feel more comfortable, that it has bled into all the different um, suppliers in a, in a very, um, I'm going to say, heartwarming way, because you just see lots and lots of choices. We did things to help with the safety aspects as well. So we did the, the Sally ports off the visitor elevators. We made sure that the, the staff elevators come up to actually a staff accessible hallway that has all the staff support areas. Nutritional care doesn't necessarily have to come onto the unit. All of their stuff can be dropped off into a alcove and then staff can access it from the other side. So all of those kind of features were actually very intentional and very included um, in the design process, which is very Right, nice. and then also thinking about staff safety, the back way out of the nurse station so that if someone did, you know, if we opened up the nurse station and someone was able to jump over, then there's another way out so that you're not barricaded and, and you're really intentionally thinking through the safety of the staff as well as the patients and I want to say thank you so very much for the information that you're sharing, but the way that you're sharing it, it's just, uh, it's what we do. It's, yes. there's no special concern there. I mean, you know, there are special concerns, but it's not like something that is out of our conversation, out of anyone's accessibility, which I think is, um, is really, really helpful again, to destigmatize, continue that movement. We're actually close to time. And I know it goes so quickly when people are, you know, talking about really, really interesting things. So what we like to do on the Wonder Podcast is allow each person to share, either reinforce something that we've talked about that you think is incredibly important, or if there's something that we haven't talked about that you think would be great for people to hear, take a few minutes and, and share that with us. So this time I'm going to start with Lori. So my brain is racking through the, should I talk about the shortage of providers? Should I talk about the I gaps think that's in the actually, system? <laughs> I do actually think that's interesting. We talked about it before we got on the um, on the yeah. podcast, but that, that does another one of those framework contextual settings for mm -hmm. everyone. Yeah. In 2016, the, the estimated number of mental health workers that we would need to add to the system was over 250,000, except that the pandemic happened, right? And so anxiety and depression reported cases have gone up by 400% since then. So that number is even very low, right? So we're thinking, you know, maybe double that. I don't know. In, in a shortage of mental health care workers. At the same time, 78% of psychiatrists report experiencing burnout symptoms, the ones that are already in practice. So we really need to find ways to support the people that are in practice and just make it more either more um, attractive or something. There's got to be a way to attract more mental health workers, um, whether it's higher pay, which is one of the things that's going on in our state, um, trying to create new roles um, with different levels of education. But we have a big problem. Um, mm. The way the U.S. identifies a mental health professional shortage area is, are you ready for this? less than one provider for 30,000 people. Now, if you think back to what CCB said at the very beginning, where maybe 25% of adults have a mental health issue, 
that's like 7,500 people that that person would need to have to help at the same time, but they can't. Like that's, it's, it's way above that capacity. So if you think about that, that threshold is just wrong, right? And that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to say it. If we're sitting here talking about it and having having people understand um, more more effectively what the challenge is, you know, that so then we have more empathy for you know the providers as well as the patients. Yeah. As we're destigmatizing all of this, the more that we talk about it, I think mm-hmm. the better off we all are. And people don't always understand or know what the opportunities are. What, where might I go? There was one other thing that you mentioned, Lori, that I would love for you to to talk about, and that was the if you can't see it, you can't be it. If you don't, oh, yeah. So we have all these conversations because this is what we talk about all day about disparities in our communities, about not uh, communities of color, LGBTQIA plus. I had to say them all. Um, communities. Uh, we have this lovely number that was created for us, this 988 number where you can call nationally and, and receive someone on the other line that, that should be able to help you. It's not always plugged in properly, but that's okay. The number exists. But communities of color, um, people that are marginalized are are less likely to call this number and actually seek help. Number one, because law enforcement is probably the one that's going to be dispatched right now instead of a crisis um, response um, team. And those communities are more likely to be harmed by law enforcement. Um, so there's one thing. And the other reason is it's hard to ask for help when you know that the person that is going to be assigned to help you isn't necessarily like you. They may not come from your culture. They may not look like you. They may not understand um, where you're coming from, what your cultural values are. And so it becomes much more difficult to want to seek that care. So until we can, I don't know the answer to this, by the way, I wish I did. I, <laughs> I, until we can sort of expand our mental health, the pool of people that are going into the mental health um, field, it, that's going to continue to be a big problem. Yeah. I mean, again, I think the more we talk about it, the more that people understand what is available, the, you know, the, the, the folks that trans, um, that walk through the, you know, charities facilities, you know, and start to get the better feeling um, because you know, that's what will help other, that will help people understand, you know, and, and experience. And the more positive experiences that people have, the more that that gets communicated. And I can't begin to tell you how many young people I've heard saying, I want to be a, because Mm -hmm. someone in my family had this issue and, you know, I want to be able to be the provider that, that helps. So I do think that, you know, there's, that's the positive spin to it. We then can end with charity and representative of the provider. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, and what would your last, uh, your last comment be? Well, I think to piggyback on what Lori's saying, uh, that's one of the things that truly excites me. And one of the reasons that I came to the University of Washington to help build this facility is because the behavioral health teaching facility will be the first facility dedicated to behavioral health teaching in the nation. And so it's really the first facility that was built with the intent to teach the next generation of behavioral health providers. Mm -hmm. And that's providers of all type. That's not just MDs, that's 
the nurse practitioners, the social workers, the nurses, the psychologists, the occupational therapists, recreational therapists, the psych techs, mm -hmm. everybody. And so we are currently working on what that looks like and how to partner with all the different schools around us and figuring out what capacity we are going to have because we are only one <laughs> location. Um, but it is it is truly exciting to be that um and to on figure the out what that yeah that's that's wonderful and we, we will all look forward to you know learning more and seeing what happens as as the school opens and I'm going to say thank you again to Charity Holmes from the University of Washington Medical Center and Lori Epler from SRG Partnership in Seattle for a really powerful conversation about what our behavioral health needs are in the United States, what's happening in the state of Washington, and what design can do to impact patient recovery. So thanks so much for this. The Wonder Podcast is available on all podcasting services. So if you'd like to sign up, you'll be able to get any Wonder Podcast. And on the, there will be a Wonder Podcast page about this particular podcast where there'll be links to Lori and Charity and all of the references that they've made. So if you have more more interest, you can get in touch with them. So thank you again. And Thanks for I, having us. You bet. <laughs> <laughs>